Well, it's good to be with you, uh, worshiping our great God this morning, and also to turn our attention now to the Word of God. Uh, this time is so very special to me, and I trust it is to you as well, where we can break open the Word and hear directly from God Himself as to how we are to think and act biblically in this very perverse uh, generation, this perverse age. I'm also excited that we are back in Hebrews uh, chapter 13. We're picking up where we left off. Uh, So if you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews 13, we'll make our way to the passage that is before us momentarily. Uh, The passage is a very profound one, and there's much to be said. Actually, a lot of ground to be laid. So you might consider this to be the introduction, (laughs) and then next Sunday uh, we, uh, we, uh, we bring the punchline, but uh, till then, uh, much to cover. So without further ado, let me, let me ease us into what I have to say. John Adams once wrote a letter, or in a letter, this, quote, the shortest road to men's hearts is down their throats, end quote. That's what he said. It evolved a bit over time, and became proverbial. And some of you will remember it this way. The way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Yes, I can see that most of you know that one. The more developed proverb means that if a woman wants to win over her man's affections, she must become a good cook and make his favorite dishes. Now, this proverb may be more or less true, probably less true today in our feminist climate, but there's something that is certainly true in principle, and I'll give it to you. Here it is. The way to express our heart's devotion to God is through a meal. That's right, through a meal. The way to express our heart's devotion to God is through a meal. How's that? Are you saying that there is a connection somehow between devotion to Christ and eating? Well, that doesn't sound right. Sounds like something that a fast food place in the Bible Belt created just to attract customers. And didn't the writer to the Hebrews just finish saying in verse 9 that it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace not foods? Well, not so fast. Uh, We pointed out in our study the last time at verse 9 that the writer does condemn the belief in Judaism back then, and in particular a sect of Judaism that seemed to to appeal so much to this congregation of Jewish Christians that sacred food sanctifies. That was their teaching. Sacred food sanctifies. Now, This view is certainly false. It's ridiculous. Eating certain foods has no sanctifying power whatsoever for those in Christ. Only a life of obedience to the word of God and repentance and change does that. So what do I mean? Well, I'm talking about how sanctified believers actually express to the Lord that they are overflowing with heartfelt gratitude to him for his blessings in their lives and are acutely aware of their commitment and devotion to him in a meal. 
Does that still sound odd to you? Maybe you're still a bit skeptical. You think it sounds perhaps a little cultish, right up there with head coverings and foot washing. Well, let me be more specific. I'm not talking about just any meal that we eat under ordinary circumstances, like a midnight snack or enjoying a juicy New York sirloin under dim lighting in the privacy of your own home. No, I'm talking about a meal that celebrates the Lord's work of grace in our lives and that engenders a closer communion with him and at the same time healthy fellowship with others in the body. I'm talking about a very specific kind of table fellowship. So important is this meal, in fact, that the New Testament made it an ordinance to be practiced regularly. Maybe now you are way ahead of me. Yes, I'm talking about the Lord's Supper. It's designed to help us remember the saving work that Jesus secured for us in his death and express our thanks to God by rejoicing and fellowshipping with others in the body. Now, this is why the New Testament refers to the Lord's Supper, by the way, as Eucharist. Some of us are more familiar with that term than others, Eucharist. It's a great word, by the way. We tend to shy away from it in Protestant circles because uh, the Roman Catholic Church claimed it for their own purposes and gave it a meaning that is completely erroneous and heretical. And, of course, we don't want to be associated with that kind of heretical thinking. But nevertheless, Eucharist remains a very important and good word. It simply means thanksgiving. And that characterizes the attitude we have when we celebrate this very uh, important communal, communal meal. Perhaps now you have a better grasp of how we, can, how we can show our devotion to the Lord through a meal like this. The 1689 Confession of Faith says that the elements of this table have been set apart for holy use and is, quote, a perpetual remembrance and display of the sacrifice of himself in his death, that is Christ. It is given for the confirmation of the faith of believers in all the benefits of Christ's death, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, and their further engagement in and to all the duties they owe him. The supper is to be a bond and pledge of their communion with Christ and each other. It is also a spiritual offering of the highest possible praise to God for that sacrifice. End quote. Very early on in Christianity, the Lord's Supper took on a fuller form among the churches. It was called the Love Feast. We find it mentioned in Jude. Now, we don't really know how the early church practiced the Lord's Supper and how the practice differed from this love feast, but we do know that both were not for the purpose of satisfying anyone's hunger. Paul told the Corinthians this, when you come together to eat, wait for one another, and if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. This was said actually in a context where there was potential abuse of the Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper is the epitome of fellowship. That's why they're to wait, and that's why they are to share and not hoard. So it was not about them. It was about the Lord, and both practices fixed the worshiper's attention on the truth behind the symbolic elements of the bread and the wine that they consumed. 
Uh, this remembrance really an enactment of Jesus' last supper with his disciples allowed them to praise the Lord for his redemptive work in their lives, for his continued blessing of the redeemed life, and rejoice that they now had an everlasting and intimate fellowship with, Lord, with, the, with the Lord Jesus Christ and with each other, hence the reason for the one loaf and the one cup. Now more than this, the Lord's Supper is the sign of the new covenant, and as such it is meant not only to assure us of our salvation, but to strengthen us in our walk with Christ. And this is why the, in reform circles the Lord's Supper is referred to as a means of grace. So now you know what I mean when I say that the way to express our heart's devotion to God is through a meal. It's a communal meal that centers around Christ and his ongoing blessing, a meal that is very much a form of fellowship with both the Lord and others in the body. Well, yeah, if you put it that way, it is. Sorry if I caught you off guard at the beginning. I wanted to be sure that I got your attention. And now that I do, I, I want to develop something with you to prepare us to understand our passage this morning. It also has to do with meals. It's a continuation on this theme. And that's this. Eating is an important symbol in the Bible of covenant relationship with God. That's right, eating. We find in Exodus 24, for example, right after the Lord cut a covenant with Israel and gave her his law, Israel had her first communal meal with God. This is how it's, this is how it's recorded. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. According to verse 5, they made their first peace offering to God and they sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Verse 11 states specifically that they saw God, that is, they understood and uh, came to um, acknowledge God in the way that he presented himself through the word and his law. And they ate and drank. This is in a context of communion with God. Now this important symbol of, of covenant relationship is carried over into the New Testament as well. I want you to think through this with me. When a person receives faith, or receives Christ rather by faith, the Apostle John says the instant communion that the Lord establishes with the sinner upon reconciling him to himself is as if Jesus sat with him and ate a meal with him. Here's the way Jesus himself describes it in Revelation 3. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Jesus also used this imagery of eating throughout his earthly ministry. He told would-be followers that he was the bread of life and that they needed to eat the bread of life if they would have eternal life. The implication behind his words to Zacchaeus, remember the short guy in the tree? It was that he must stay at his house, which surely meant having a meal with him, where Jesus would have given him the words of eternal life. 
<clears throat> and we can be sure that Zacchaeus interpreted Jesus' desire to go to his house and have a meal with him to mean that salvation has come to his house. The Lord will also usher in the eternal state with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So eating remains an all-important symbol of the new covenant. More specifically, it emphasizes at least two realities. Let me give them to you. Two realities. One is our ongoing fellowship with our covenant God. Fellowship is the key word here. We can go back further than the establishment of Israel as a nation to see the significance of communal meals. But there's no need to do that when this practice was formalized by the Levitical Code. So in the Levitical Code, it talks about Israel's sacrifices. Now let me explain this to you, a little bit of Old Testament history. Israel's sacrifices can be divided up into two major categories. There were the sweet savor offerings, and there were the non-sweet savor offerings. That's it. Pretty simple. What's the difference if both were acceptable offerings to the Lord? Well, the sweet savor offerings were those that a believer made or offered in communion with God. In other words, the believer was right with God, enjoyed God's blessings, so the offerings here were gifts or tributes that the worshiper presented to God out of devotion and affection. And they were gifts because the animals that were used were domesticated. They, in fact, were pets. These sweet savor offerings were given in many different occasions, but really any time an Old Testament believer was compelled to express his joy over being in fellowship with God, he did it through this kind of offering. The most important of the sweet savor offerings was the peace offering, hashalamim. When a believer made a peace offering, he was celebrating the fact that all is well between him and God. Our fellowship is tight, it's sweet. Now these sweet savor offerings were also shared. And this is, this is the important part of the sweet savor offering. One portion was given, of course, to Yahweh, which was burned up on the altar. It comprised the fat portions and also the blood, uh, which was considered a life-giving part. The breast and the right leg were given to the priests who facilitated the offering. The remainder of the animal belonged to the person who offered the sacrifice, and he ate it with his family and any guests that happened to be in the holy place at the time. So it was a fellowship meal. To eat with God and to eat with others in one, is one, rather, of the greatest forms of fellowship in the Old Testament. Fellowship with God was most um, particularly experienced in a group. So for the Old Testament saints, the peace offering was the ideal, the most complete offering, because it maintained one's fellowship with God. Now the other category over here, the other category of, of offerings, was the non-sweet savor offerings. A believer made it not in communion with God, but for communion with God. In other words, to reestablish communion with God that he broke, either because of, well, sin, 
or because he violated the Levitical code in some way, touched a dead body, went outside the camp, whatever it was. There were offenses that were not, these were offenses that were not premeditated, mind you. These were not sins of the high hand. And the non-sweet savor offerings included purification offerings, reparation offerings, and sin offerings. They all involve repentance, confession, and forgiveness. The believer had offered, uh, had offended God, rather, and was not right with him. Fellowship had been disturbed. So the non-sweet savor offerings restored fellowship between the believer and God. As a result, none of the animal that was sacrificed in the non-sweet savor offering were eaten. They were either burned up entirely on the altar or part of of it was, and the rest was burned outside the camp in a clean place. These were sacrifices of atonement to reestablish fellowship with God, not to engage in fellowship. It was a serious moment, a, a mournful time, a time of confession. It required a contrite heart that sought God's forgiveness. Therefore, there was no celebrating at the sacrifice before that could happen. Before an expression of joy, any peace offerings could be given, the believer had first needed to make things right with God. And that required blood. Blood of the non-savor, sweet savor offering. So we see that fellowship is one key of communal eating. There's something else that eating signifies in the Bible that's closely related to the joyful declaration of being in fellowship with our covenant God, and it is the idea of identification. Identification. What do I mean by that? The Apostle Paul discusses in 1 Corinthians 10 something very important that sheds light on this whole idea of identification. In verse 18, he says this, Look at the nation Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, they are. The rhetorical question that demands yes may be somewhat puzzling. What does it mean exactly that they shared in the altar? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to understand a few of the terms, like, for example, altar. Paul uses the word altar here as a figure for the God that the altar represents. So in Israel's case of the golden calf incident, which Paul most likely is referring to in this context of idolatry, the golden calf represented the fertility God. We also need to understand, second, the word share that translates the Greek word koinonia. What does it mean that worshipers share in the God honored by their cultic meal? Well, we might understand that it means that they identified with the God. Ancient pagan worshipers identified with the God represented by the inanimate idol of wood and stone. This means that they acknowledged a close relationship with the God and were proponents of the whole belief system that was associated or connected with the God, whether it was Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Canaanite, Greek. 
whatever it was. And when Paul wrote this, he was referring, you see, to a very common belief in the ancient world that those who partake of a cultic meal in celebration of a particular god represented by the idol were actually showing themselves to be companions with the god. Now that might seem to be harm, a harmless position from your vantage point, since we know that idols are nothing. Paul even said that food dedicated to them remains unchanged and that Christians could feel free to eat them if, of course, their conscience were not troubled by that. But as empty as these wooden and stone idols were that they bowed down to or a golden calf that they paid homage to, there is serious and great harm in idolatry. Make no mistake about that. That's because, as Paul also mentions in the very same breath, there is a demonic power behind all idolatry. He says, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, not to a god. Uh, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons, verse 20. So while idols are nothing, and the gods they represent are no gods at all, there is a demonic presence behind the whole practice that propagates the belief system associated with the idol itself. And you could be sure that the demonic forces influence those who worship the idol to buy into the belief system associated with it. So when these worshipers eat a sacred meal before an inanimate piece of wood or stone in honor of some pagan god, they unknowingly align themselves with a demonic agenda that is expressed in the specifics of whatever pagan cult they're wrapped up in. Paul calls it the doctrine of demons, 1 Timothy 4. Putting this all together, then, pagan worshipers ate their sacred cultic meals before their idols, or unrighteous Israel did before the golden calf, which to them represented a fertility god. But little did any of them realize they were, they were actually identifying with a satanic worldview that demonic forces behind the scenes promoted through the idolatry, so says Paul. Okay, with this information, we can now turn our attention to our passage in Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 13 and verses 10 to 14. So far in chapter 13, we've considered that running the race has to do with how we treat others, verses 1 to 3. And also how we maintain our own personal faith, verses 4 to 9. We're now in the last part of this lengthy section, verses 10 to 21, which is about how we're to position ourselves before our holy God. That is, how we are to behave toward God. And the section presents four areas of Christian behavior then, and we're going to look at just the first one in verses 10 to 14. It has to do with identifying with Christ. How do we identify with Christ? What are the distinguishing marks of identification with Christ? And how is our identification with Christ, excuse me, compromised? Well, we'll answer those questions in part today and more fully next Lord's Day, as we've got much to cover. But 
Our text before us opens with a very strong implication that this first century Jewish church, this Jewish Christian church rather, was being attacked because they identified with Jesus, at least initially. They identified with Christ. That's why they were being persecuted, and of course they didn't like it. The persecution came in a number of ways, but no doubt one way discredited their precious faith because it had no altar. How can you have a legitimate faith without any altar? It had no altar, it had no mention of, of sacrificial system, no priest, no high priest, all of which God established in his law. Everybody knew that. How can any belief system that claims to be legitimately of God lack any of these important elements? It seemed an airtight argument to the critics, and it certainly scared the Jewish Christians to death. The answer to that criticism, of course, is that those prescribed rituals and ceremonies in, Levitic in Leviticus really prefigured Messiah's work and became obsolete once Messiah came and established the new covenant. See how easy that answer is? But for some reason, these Jewish Christians were not well grounded in their doctrine and ill-equipped to stand their ground, so the writer helps them out. And in verse 10, he does so very in a very persuasive manner. He says this, We have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Hmm. Maybe that's not the way that you would have answered such criticism. You're probably thinking, Christianity doesn't have an altar. Well, in one sense, it does. But it's not found in any of our churches or any place on this earth for that matter. No, the altar that the writer refers to is really Christ himself. We know by now from our in-depth study of Hebrews that most of the elements of the Old Testament sacrificial system were in some way or some other, uh, some way or other, I should say, a type of Christ. For example, we already know that Jesus is both high priest and the very sacrifice that the high priest offers. Jesus is both. He entered the sanctuary of heaven as a high priest and then offered himself, which is why his priesthood is so much uh, more superior to the Aaronic priesthood. Well, Jesus is also the altar on which he offered himself. This is not as far-fetched as it sounds in light of the fact that the altar, as we already explained, is a figure for God himself. question that the writer raises in our minds with, with, uh, with his response, though, is why are the Jewish priests exempt or unqualified to eat from our altar? And verse 11 gives us the answer. He says, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a, an offering for sin, are burned outside the camp. Verse 11 obviously alludes to the Day of Atonement, something the writer has alluded to a number of times already when comparing Christ to the Aaronic priesthood and the office of high priest. Now, during the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, which was the, the most... Um, was the, the most holy day in, 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 in the Hebrew calendar, the high priest made sacrifices on behalf of individuals and also the nation. All sins were forgiven from the previous year. All sins 
were forgiven at this time. You may remember the two major sin offerings at that event. One was the scapegoat. That was sort of the living sacrifice that was sent out of the camp, symbolically carrying the sins of the nation and went into the wilderness to die. It was a tangible picture to Israel of God's act of removing their sin from them. The second goat was sacrificed on the altar as a non-sweet savor altar uh, offering. Why? Because blood was involved. Because it sought to reestablish fellowship with God that had been broken because of personal sins committed the previous year. This was not a joyous occasion. It was a somber one, Yom Kippur. It was a time of repentance, confession, seeking God's forgiveness. The blood of this animal was sprinkled in the Holy of Holies and the rest of it was completely burned outside the camp. None of this sacrifice was eaten or shared with priests and friends. You know that now. Non-sweet savor offering. So how does verse 11 explain why Jewish priests were exempt or unqualified to eat from the spiritual altar that is Christ? Well, if these priests had no right to partake of the sin offering, since it was a non-sweet savor offering and burnt outside the camp, and Jesus was the fulfillment of that offering, well, then the priest had no part with Christ either. They have no more right to partake of Christ than they do of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement. And verse 12 confirms this. The writer goes on to say, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Now the writer could easily have told us that the current priests of their day, who were still officiating at the temple on the Day of Atonement, when this letter was written, had no right to partake of Jesus because Jesus suffered outside the camp. He could have just said that. He could have gone right from verse 10 to verse 12. But verse 11 is there to make the connection tighter. The sin offering that the priests offered on the Day of Atonement was a sacrifice that prefigured the work of Christ the work of redemption that he would secure outside the camp. The priests had no right to eat of this sacrifice under their own system, and they have no right now, except by faith and repentance, to partake of its fulfillment in Jesus. But we do. We do. We have been given the right, and that's exactly what verses 10, 11, and 12 teach us. What the priests at the time had no right to eat, the ultimate sin offering that is Jesus' sacrifice outside the camp, God has given those who are born again the right to partake. The Jewish Christians of the first century, even every Christian since then to this very day, and those yet to become Christians until the Lord returns, have been given the right to eat of this altar. You see, what makes Jesus' sacrifice so unique and superior to those animal sacrifices of the Old Testament is this. He was both our sin offering and our peace offering at the same time. 
Jesus fulfilled all the Old Testament offerings, both the sweet savor offerings and the non-sweet savor offerings at the same time. That means that when Jesus offered himself as our substitute, sacrificing himself on our behalf, he not only restored us to God, but gave us instant fellowship with him. Instant. In a word, Jesus reconciled us to God. Listen to the way Paul explains it in Romans 5. But God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That's the non-sweet savor offering. Here comes the sweet savor offering. Verse 11. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. What does it mean for us to partake of our altar? Who is Christ? To eat of this sacrifice that is every bit a sweet savory offering. We mentioned a moment ago the ancient idea of identifying with a supernatural being behind the altar of idols in 1 Corinthians 10. Well, that was not just Paul's comment on pagan rituals. It's his description also of what happens at the Lord's Supper, which he brings up in the same chapter, in the same way that the pagans identified with their god represented by the idol, but was really identifying with the demonic presence behind it, the satanic ideology that it propagated through the whole process of idolatry. So Christians identify with Christ, <coughs> who is behind the ordinance of communion. We partake together of the elements of the bread and wine, which symbolize for us the body and blood of Christ. And in so doing, we identify with Christ. Partaking means that we identify with our Lord and Savior. Listen to Paul's comments. Again, 1 Corinthians 10, in verse 16, Is not the cup of the blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? See, partaking of the elements of the communion means that we are associated with Christ, with what he is and what he stands for, especially the redemptive work of grace on our behalf. It means that, that we are in accord with his will as it is expressed in Scripture. When we eat together the elements of the Lord's table, the remembrance table, we show ourselves to be companions of Christ by faith. We express the, the reality of our union with him. According to Paul, fellowship with Christ or identification with him means not only that we align ourselves with him, but listen to this, that we also participate in a, in a real sense in the detailed phases of the life of Christ. You know this to be true. In Romans 6, where Paul speaks of spiritual baptism, by the way, the Greek term means identification, we learn that we, we've been identified with Christ's death 
and burial and resurrection. And there's more. We also identify with his suffering, Philippians 3.10, with his crucifixion, Galatians 2.19, where we're made alive together with him, Colossians 2.13. We're joined heirs with him that we might share in the glory that is to be revealed, 1 Peter 5.1. We will reign with him, 2 Timothy 2.12. Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 10 is simply that if we show our close identity, if we show uh, our close identification with Jesus through the ordinance of communion, we, would, that we are aligning ourselves with him, and we would not want to align ourselves with other gods. So we must flee idolatry. That's the point of the chapter. Now, I've been focusing your attention on the Lord's table so far in our study as an example of the significance of a sacred meal that, and how we identify with Christ by eating it. But Hebrews 13, 10 to 14 is not about the ordinance. And neither the writer nor I am referring to that here. We are talking really about identifying with Christ all the time in our lives, outside of the ordinance, as well as inside. And Jesus makes this important point when he called sinners to embrace him, to give their loyalty to him, and couched that call in terms of eating him. Here's what he said, according to John 6, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood. You have no life in yourself. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. What's Jesus getting at? Well, he wasn't talking about the Lord's Supper, that's for sure. In the same breath, he says, these words that I have spoken to you are spirit. They're not literal. No, nor was he advocating cannibalism, of course, literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood, which is actually promoted in the Roman Catholic Mass. Now, Jesus uses high figure here, high figurative language, to call for loyalty among his followers, for surrendering one's life to him, for identifying with him in every way possible, with his will, his word, his way, his power, his mind, his purposes. Eating him means identifying with him in the most intimate way possible. Jesus' Jewish audience at this time would no doubt have found his terminology highly offensive. Highly offensive. Why? Well, aside from the fact that drinking blood was forbidden by the Torah and was an abomination to God, I believe they were put off mostly by the absolute way in which Jesus was calling them to identify with him. And that is exactly the reason people today find these concepts of the gospel offensive. It is the depraved nature to bristle and push back at the gospel's all-or-nothing demands 
Jesus made a point of emphasizing it. Devotion to him, he argued, must be so tight that you would choose to listen to him even over your own family. That you would wake every moment determined to follow him even if it would lead you to your own cross. Well, we began our study talking about how eating the Lord's Supper, communal meal, symbolizes our covenant relationship with him and our identification with him in all that he represents. We have a better idea of the importance of this ordinance and how it becomes for us a means of grace, but just as significant and more to the point of our passage is the importance of our ongoing identification with Christ which will no doubt be put to the test in these last days as as it was for the Jewish Christians in the first century church. We consider the more practical side of identifying with Christ, what it actually looks like in real life next time. Our Father, we are so grateful for your, your goodness to us, for your word For this passage in Hebrews, which is so very relational, for we can relate to the first century Jewish Christians and the persecution they faced, struggles, the temptations, and the need to fight, to fight in this faith, this good fight. Lord, we pray then that it would be always our intention to identify with Christ, to align ourselves with his word, with his will. In fact, even confession itself, the very heart of it, is to say the same thing about your sin as God does. And Lord, we certainly today confess that we are unworthy and that we are sinful. But we are so grateful for the, for the work of Christ and that we have been the recipients of its saving power. We're so grateful that we can identify now with our Lord and that we will share with him in his glory someday. Pray that that will be in the fore of our brains as we live out the rest of this day, the rest of this week, on until we meet again and on until you come again for your honor, for your glory, and for the benefit of your church. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.